Hello, and in today's episode of VFM, we are talking to Mr. Annuity, Mark Ormston from the Retirement Line, about what value for money means to him. and welcome to the 22nd yes 22nd episode of VFM the pensions podcast and as ever I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host Mr Actuary himself Nico Aspinall. <laughs> Hi Darren yeah I heard for a second there that this was a 20 second long episode but no it's our 22nd episode 22nd yes <laughs> uh, and look I'm delighted as ever to be sat with uh the head honcho of Shula PR and Policy. The only honcho of Shula PR and Policy. The only honcho. <laughs> you shouldn't say that. You are the mover and shaker. You have to pretend there's gnomes hiding behind you doing all the work. <laughs> and um, today we're delighted to be joined by Mark Ormston, retirement line annuity advocate extraordinaire. Mark is chair of the PASA Industry Policy Committee. He's also chair of the Next Gen Research and Insight Committee and is a member of the PMI Advisory Council. Welcome, Mark. Great to have you on the pod. Hi, both. Lovely to be here. <laughs> so you've got, you, you, you do a lot of uh, different, are those sort of volunteering roles? or I mean, you sort of get out and about in, the, in those kind of industry bodies. That's really good to see. Yeah, they're all, they're all volunteering sort of roles, but I, I just really enjoy it. I can't can't get enough of it. Can't get enough of pensions. It sort of pulls you in. <laughs> you, you love a, pen, a good pensions chat. That's love right. Love a good it? pensions chat. Well, you're in the right place, Mark. That's all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone knows the drill. Um, so first as ever, we'll start with the news. Uh, guests have prerogative on this. Uh, so Mark, what have you got for us today? Oh, thank you. Um, so I've actually got a couple. I want to start with the uh, the headline in Pensions Age from just a couple of days ago. And we had a Martin Lewis slash Steve Webb pension special on ITV last night about it. The government extends national insurance contribution deadline. Yep. So this is this is obviously where people can uh, pay voluntary national insurance contributions. And they extended that deadline by nearly two years, yep. taking them up to the 5th of April 2025 to boost their state pension entitlement. I just think that's a really positive move, mainly just purely because the, the volumes of people trying to get through and just cannot get through to the service to, uh, mm. to look at this. It's um, it's really quite shocking. Now, I know the current pensions ministers looking into this and they're going to offer sort of a, a digital service. But from the, from the sounds of things, reading, you know, when the show was on last night, people have been trying up to 60 times in 75, 72 hours three days trying to get through to this service and it just can't get through it's crazy isn't it and and like like Mm. you i think this is this is good news um it's obviously been done for operational reasons um but i think there could potentially be a wider policy question there because i think you can go back and um is it for six years or something you can go back and fill in your national insurance record that's right i I think given the importance of the state pension um as that underpinning for people's retirement there's probably a question whether you should go be able to go back and fill in years um, longer than six years uh, yeah. because, you know, people's circumstances change. 
and and we know that you know um, especially if you're younger you're less likely to sort of put your hand in your pocket and think about um, buying a national insurance credit uh, for a year of your retirement I don't know in 40 years time yeah I mean I for me I was I was wondering why there's a time limit on this at all um you know the to fundamentally you know as an actuary I'd, I'd sit there and go okay so when you're coming up at 60 the value of a 22 year old um ni credit is is different right than than uh, the minimum that they'd require of you yeah so maybe there's an actuarial calculation to be done there um but you know you don't know whether you've got qualifying service until you get close to the end so i i had one of those letters when i was uh, at university saying you can top yourself up and I ignored it. Um, <laughs> I've been I've been hard working since and I'd be pretty amazing if I don't do 30, 35 years qualifying service for the state pension. Um, but it's plausible that I don't. I haven't ticked it off yet. So, you know, I should be able to go and fill in whatever bit of record is needed to, to top that up if, if it, you know, if I get ill now and I can't do it. So, um, mm. yeah, it, it seems weird that there's this restriction at all. I think it's really powerful as well that when it's like one or two months in a in a year you know that, mm. that can often be really quite cheap yeah um, and i imagine again this is probably you know impacting uh women more than more than men potentially because of caring responsibilities and, and child care uh, falling on them and if they're missing a couple of months you know that's 30 pounds something like that to top that up for a full mm. national insurance contribution year that uh, can make a substantial difference. And as we said, you know, the state pension, we don't talk about it enough, really, because it sort of competes a little bit with the uh, the, the retail sector of private pensions, I guess. But it just makes a huge difference. It is mm. really the, the starring role in most people's retirement income for the next couple of generations, at least. Mm, Excellent. Yeah. So you you were you're going to be greedy, Mark, and have two stories. Um, <laughs> there's a trend here. Um, like I think you started the trend, Nico, by I think in one of the episodes having three oh, stories. Oh, you blame me uh, for everything. Oh, of course I do. Yeah. Um, so so so, what's your next story, Mark? I just episode twenty three. Someone's going to come on. Well, I've actually picked three stories. Where where does it end? <laughs> yeah. um, um, I, I, I picked I picked one following the the PLSA um, uh, conference last week and. The headline is compulsion recommended for decumulation CDC success. Now, as always, the headline's slightly different to maybe the, the bulk of the story, but this is picking up on something that uh, Claire Altman suggested to saying that basically scale is needed for CDC to become successful. I think she put something in the figure of around at least 5,000. So to, yeah, to, I think to... Simon Eagles at the conference um, suggested that in his presentation. Yeah. Um, so she was saying one way of maintaining scale is basically decumulation CDC with, with a measure on compulsion and making sure that uh, people once in it cannot opt out of it. And I, I think these are really important details around CDC that need to be sorted and ironed out, especially if we're going to get to a point of retail CDC or decumulation only CDC, because mm. they're, you know, how you know, we ask for people in the annuity market to shop around and do comparisons. We're going to have to ask people to do the same with CDC if we get them. Yeah, I've always um, it's a really good point, and I think um, you're you're totally right in terms of headlines versus uh, the detail on this stuff. Because you know, I was in that session; it was a great session, actually. Um, you know, uh, exploring the, the the positive stuff around CDC, uh, but mm. equally um, having a really good in depth discussion around some of the challenges. And I think Claire's point was very much, you know, like yes. 
love innovation, love thinking about stuff in like this in principle. Um, but we've got to think about how we can make it work and and scale um, and having mm. that sort of pipeline of people within the CDC um, arrangement is really, really important. And, um, you know, it's and I would 100% agree that it's difficult to see how that can be achieved and importantly maintained because it's the maintenance of this that's just as important and um, without some degree of lock-in or compulsion. Um, I think that's quite different from you know, um, the debate around whether CDC should be compulsory or not, um, which, you know, which um, I think, um, you know, is, is, a, is a totally different question around, you know, what retirement options people should have available to them. Mm. I mean, I, I just feel that the branding of CDC is misleading. Um, I mean, we're talking about an unprotected annuity, an unprotected with profits annuity, right? Um, so, you know, this is a sort of mutual with profits annuity that an insurer is now talking about, but they don't want to put the shareholder capital behind. Um, you know, the, the the DC letters here, I just don't think really apply. Mm. This is basically DB light, isn't it? Um, well, it depends on um, how it's constructed. Um, but the Royal Mail uh, version, which is the only sort of practical application we have on this at the moment, is basically DB without the guarantees. Yeah, but I'm not even trapped in DB, am I? No. Um, you know, I get transfer values and we can argue whether they're good value. Um, but, you know, for there to be a product that I willingly go into uh, and then I'm trapped into, this is an, an annuity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, I just, I just, it's not DC. Yeah. It's not I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I'm saying elsewhere, actually, I was doing, doing a piece for, for Reddington and they asked me my, my views on CDC. I could give a bit of a live example. My, my postman knocked on my door and mm. sort of said, you do pensions, don't you? And that's a sure sign that I get far too much pensions post. Come, come <laughs> <through the, laughs> I, 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 I still get the emails, um, but I, apparently I still get the post as well. But um, he said, I've, I've had this letter about CDC and I've got my ABC. And anyway, we went through his full, full pension history. It's got multiple pots left, right and centre. And he was just trying to tell me, you know, what, what do you think about this CDC? And he sort of pulled a few faces and... He goes, oh, I don't know if this, if this is for me. Um, and I think that's where CDC's biggest challenge is actually going to be that market research. And, and um, you know, with, when you look at the TPR regulations, it's, it's testing that and yeah. understanding of the product. <clears throat> and that's going to be paramount. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, <laughs> the decumulation aspects are different from the accumulation aspects, right? Um, so it, you, you could have two CDC schemes next to each other one of which looks like a with profit traditional fund um, and one of which looks like a with profit annuity and you have the choice to convert or take your money out. Right? Well, I think this is part of the problem with the CDC debate uh, mm. because there's no sort of single definition of what a CDC scheme actually mm. is. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, um, quite often it is somewhere in the middle between DB and DC. Um, and I think quite often you can one can end up talking at cross purposes um, because you're not defining what the actual structure of the product is that you're talking about. And um, just going back to the investment conference and then we'll move on. 
um, I think Stefan Lundberg uh, from Condano was on a on, was on a different panel, um, and he said uh, CDC with the C, the first C standing for complicated. Complicated DC was um, was, <laughs> was the, the term of phrase that he uh, he coined. Well, I mean, I just say, I, uh, sorry, go on, Mark, go on. That's right. I was going to say, is I just think it's really positive that we're having these conversations. So oh gosh, yeah. Just the fact that we have this as an option, it's being discussed and it's it's being developed at, at the moment is really positive because it actually brings the other options into play a lot more. Yeah. So I think mm. people will consider drawdown and annuity a lot more because they're looking at this option and going, is this somewhere in between the two somehow? And maybe I could be looking at a combination of these options a little yep. bit more. Yeah. No, I agree. It's yeah. Really powerful. I mean, I, I just shuddered a little bit when Darren, you said, you know, maybe people are shopping around for different, you know, retail CDC, you know, this is, that's the, that's the end that, that for me tells me this is going to be absolutely disastrous in a generation <laughs> because, you know, what happened with, with profits was that the provider became incentivized to up and up the bonuses yeah, um, yeah. until from the vast majority of them were essentially Ponzi schemes. Yeah. Um, and why did they do that? To compete for business. Yeah, so if this is not going to be sponsored, um, not for profit, you know, then then it's a toxic idea. Toxic. So moving from CDC, um, can I have my story now, Nico? No. <laughs> <laughs> so um, continue as we've got Mark on. There's going to be a consistent theme, I think, to this podcast, and um, you, 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 it won't take a genius to work out what the theme will be. Um, but I was quite interested in um, some professional pensions coverage um, from the other day, with um, some research showing the annuity gap increasing to a four-year high. Analysis finds gap could leave retirees potentially 500 a year worse off. And this um, is research um, and analysis from the Just Group. Um, and the research of the market found the disparity between the least and most competitive annuity providers has increased to 18% compared to 14% um, earlier in the year. Um, so obviously, just building on your comment a minute ago, Nico, about sort of shopping around. You know, if you don't mm. shopping, don't if you don't shop around, even when it comes to purchasing an annuity, you risk not getting good value. Uh, Mark, what do we do about it? <laughs> <laughs> well, this this is this is such a such a tricky one because the message around shopping around has been there been there for a while, and I, I've seen these sort of figures before, and they match roughly with my internal analysis as well. Mm. But the gap obviously grows when you start looking at health and lifestyle issues. Yep. Now, most people now get a lifetime annuity have some form of underwriting. You know, we see something like 85% of all lifetime annuities are being underwritten on something more than just the postcode. Right. So there is this degree here. And it all comes down to your annuity provider's competitiveness at that time. Yeah. And it just feels a little bit wrong. So when the, the market went a little bit bonkers, when we had the mini budget, and to be honest, we're kind of getting there again now when you look at the gilts, they're, um, they're really quite high again. It's uh, demonstrating investors' confidence in the UK economy, but that's a different. Uh, that's, that's a different <laughs> well, discussion. or an oversupply of debt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, what you saw was some some of these providers went overly competitive quite quick, and then all of a sudden service levels fell down, so they they reduced their rates. Yeah. Now, if if I'm someone in that uh, have a pension scheme with that annuity provider, and I get my letter through, my rate is now determined on that, and if I just sign on the dotted line for ease 
that I could be missing out on, on quite a lot of income over the rest of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So I'll always shop around um, and do the calculations uh, as well. Of, you might look at it and go, it's £100 a year or whatever, but that, that very quickly starts to uh, ramp up. It does, doesn't it? And and, it, and this, this is so hard as well because, you know, the way insurance works is you know um you know I, I used to work on general insurance at the treasury and you know the underwriting cycle was you know a real thing that you know um insurers would reduce pricing go for growth go for revenue growth mm. um and then sort of regret it um and it just produced this sort of uh, cycle um but within the general insurance sphere you know that's a repeat game so it's not catastrophic for someone if they pay slightly more on their home insurance one year compared right. to the next. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the, the thing about annuities is it's a one shot decision, you know, and mm-hmm. get it wrong at that point. Be unlucky um, in a, um, to, to, to sign the form that you say, Mark. Um, and, and if you haven't shopped around, you can have, you know, massive impacts on your income for the rest of your life. Yeah, and I think what always surprises me is you do hear it on the phones every so often. People say, "Oh, it's only X," so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to bother. I'm not, not worried about that. But that X could be an annuity shaping option, and yes. that that's really interesting for me. So all of a sudden, and again, this is something that we need to, I think, potentially improve upon. But something like a twelve to fifteen year guarantee period now will ensure that the original invested amount to purchase the annuity will be returned to somebody so if the annuitant has, has passed on in that time frame the income will be paid uh, to a beneficiary or the estate mm. and that could be the difference of just shopping around you've guaranteed that you will at least get the uh, the purchase price back yeah yeah i i wanted to ask mark so are we seeing any innovation so, so darren just picked out for me the kind of critical risk which is uh, timing, right? So, so if you're going to put, you know, £20,000, £200,000 into essentially take it out of markets and put it into an insurance product in one go at one point in time, then of course, you're going to f- suffer some timing risk. Are we starting to see anyone, you know, have a sort of regular premium annuity where I might do that in five slices or, uh, you know, deferred annuities? These are the sort of things that I've been talking about in the DC market for years and years mm. and years. So they is anybody doing these things? Yeah, so like you, yeah, I've been talking about it an awful lot, <laughs> especially deferred annuities. I had two conversations about deferred annuities uh, in, in the capital last week. Um, mm. They sound fantastic on paper, don't they? And they, they should mm. really work. The difficulty for me is getting that value for money from them, actually. So how do they compare against an immediate annuity if you're going to purchase an immediate annuity in that mm. moment in time? And the way that the underwriting is going and everything else, it's not sometimes stacking up. It could be a real risk. And then what does the annuity shaping look like at that time could be very different to someone who went to do it you know, years ago. So maybe it's more of a locking something away, POTS type method mm. to then purchase an annuity. But then where's the compulsion going to come to to actually then go on and buy that annuity? Yeah. So that that's the one in regards to, um, to that particular point. But I, I really like the idea of someone actually doing it in slices. So almost micro annuities. Mm. Mm. So when the market is right, and, and it feels right, you actually just keep locking in little bits, little bits, little bits, and you're de-risking that way. I think when we get into 
you know, discussions around maybe default options or default offerings and journeys, most of them are going to include an annuity at some point. Um, and I think there's a real one that I don't hear too much, but the fixed term annuity could be used mm. at the beginning of the pension income journey, not just at the end, but the beginning to really help against things like sequencing risk and mm. actually taking mm. some of that yeah. income support um, for that first few years, even five years or, or something like that. Or like we say, the very traditional thinking is, and we've got it through LCPs, you know, flex first, fix later. Uh, paper that which they released uh, last year now which is you, you go into your flexibility first you have your drawdown and then there's an ideal time to annuitize because you want to start de-risking and and rate support it etc and that might be you know when around the 80 mark 82 mark is a very popular age that mm. comes out at but I, I think for me it's so individual um, that that's the issue but I, I must admit I do think I like the idea of some of these default offerings just to try and stop harm they're never yeah. going to give an optimal outcome because I think for best outcomes, you need engagement and fill, you know, holistic understanding of the whole situation and, and ongoing um, reviews. However, if it's stopping harm, uh, I think that will work for an awful lot of people, especially mm. as you know, with auto enrollment, it's kind of pensions kind of happening to them. Yeah. And maybe that's what they need in decumulation. I don't know. So, so um, I, th I think you're right here. I think sometimes we spend uh, time agonizing and debating at the margins as to you know can the default ever really optimize an outcome for people how can you ensure that it's it's always doing the right thing and i think we just need to accept it can't and it doesn't in accumulation yeah so it can't it certainly can't in decumulation and and you know i, I love what you said there mark around we need to make sure people aren't aren't, aren't doing harm you know and and if if we can use defaults to to do that then that's got to be better than doing nothing, which is the situation we're in at the moment. Mm, yeah. Good There's stuff. about 15 different things I could jump off on there, but oh, maybe no, yeah. we should <laughs> come, <laughs> well, well, come back to annuities again, I'm sure. We, we, we will definitely come back to annuities. So, Nico, what have you got for us? Yeah, I wanted to talk about the DWP research on the gender pensions gap, um, which is the difference between the size of men and women's uh, private pensions pots. Uh, in their analysis. Um, so overall, 35% gap, um, which means that a woman typically saves £65 for every £100 saved. Mm. Um, but actually, it's even more stark if you look at DC schemes, where the gender pensions gap, I, I, I think I'm reading this right, is 60%, which means that a woman saves £40 for every £100 saved by a man. So presumably this sort of reflects uh, auto-enrollment populations um, and, uh, you know, all of the kind of part-time work and yeah. um, uh, below-threshold work uh, that is hopefully being picked up by, um, well, it's rapidly becoming a power of the minister to, to change earnings thresholds and um, various uh, age thresholds as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think that kind of 60% figure is... Oh, I don't know what the word is, but just embarrassing as a nation um, that we can be in a place where, you know, women, are, 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 you know, if you put that into ages of retirement, uh, you know, being compelled to work much, much longer. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, uh, hopefully this is a big uh, kick up the bum for anyone looking at a, a policy that could affect these areas yeah so i 100 percent agree and i think um we mentioned that there's this uh is it pensions equity or pensions equality group that has been um mm. has been yeah. set up and, and i think you know initiatives like that 
um, are, are great. Um, and, you know, we need to make sure that the pension system, you know, supports all savers. You know, um, a lot of this comes down to labour market. Um, you yeah. mentioned sort of caring and uh, taking time out of work and, you know, part time working. Um, but, you know, we, we, we have a gender pension gap because we have a gender pay gap. Um, yes. And I think that, you know, until our society actually gets to the point where, you know, uh, people are genuinely paid equally um, for similar types of work. And then we, we work out how to deal with times out of the workforce and to make sure that that doesn't um, impact on people's pay progression and stuff. We're always going to have a gender pay gap um, and, and pensions gap. So I think that, you know, we've got to really start looking at the root causes of some of this as well. Oh, I yeah. you know, sorry, I just, just completely yeah. agree with that point. It is very much an earnings point. But I think even for me, I'm going to focus on a very particular area of, of just going on, on maternity and mm-hmm. and that sort of side of things. You know, the stories you hear in 2023 around this point is just horrific. Mm. You know, it has to yeah. be so much better. We should really be very ashamed of of this figure and I think that's why I was sort of kind of pleased to see DWP publish it yeah because now now it is out there for the world to see and it's you know should be high priority now and tracked with uh, greater consistency yeah I was made of a yeah uh, aware of an interesting example the other day where um someone was on maternity leave and um they um didn't have their uh, development review um, because they were on maternity leave, which meant that they um, didn't necessarily have the full and fair pay rise that they should have had. Um, so it's not just a, a whole equal pay type thing, yeah, um, and a fair day's pay for a fair day's work and all of that. There's there's sort of operational biases within the system as well. Um, and I think, you know, all, all mm. pension companies, if we're talking about the pension, the gender pensions gap, you know, need to look at their own um, gender pay issues, their own workplace policy issues um, to make sure that they're not, you know, contributing to the cause of some of this problem. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah but I, 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 I just want to add one kind of refinement to what you said, Darren. So, so it, I think it is 100 percent right that we realize that the gender pensions gap is uh, partly created by the gender pay gap. Um, but if you put those two figures next to each other, I don't believe the gender pay gap is 60% for DC contributors. No, no. So no, there is something in the system yeah. which has exacerbated, yeah. you know, made worse the biases against yeah. females in our yeah. society. Um, and that has to be the focus of policy. You know, yeah. If you had a company and you have to put the gender pay gap and the gender pensions gap next to each other and demonstrate to me that your own pension system does not uh, you know, make the biases uh, even worse. Yeah. I, th- I think that comparison is the one to go. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. So I don't think you could ever eradicate the gender pensions gap without eradicating the gender pay gap. But the, pen- yeah. but the pension system and the pensions offering shouldn't be making things worse, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's where some of the effort needs to be focused from a pensions <laughs> industry perspective. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's amazing how far we've come. Um, so when I was at Barclays, um, you know, it was I saw and was shocked to find that it was common practice in the 70s to essentially say that women couldn't join the pension scheme um, because the man was meant to be getting the, the pension. Um, and then uh, at some stage, I don't know if it's a high court case or it certainly wasn't because of Barclays. It was sort of across the industry. 
Um, then though you had to let women into the pension scheme. I'm sure that shocked various people. Um, but you had longer qualifying service as a woman uh, than a man. And if you went on maternity, then your service clock stopped. So there were various cases that um, were being dealt with where people had worked for Barclays for you know almost a decade, but had enough children during that period to never actually start accruing pension. Um, and at some stage in the the late eighties or late nineties, it was it was decided that you know that this this particular part of the inequity should be corrected. Um, so yeah, I mean you know to come from there to a system where every woman earning more than uh, £10,000 roughly, you know, automatically gets given a pension is, is a huge step forward. Yeah. But my goodness, how far we still have to come if this is a 60% can. Indeed. Indeed. Mark, did you want to come in on that? No, I, I just going to agree with your point in regards to policy and operational policy. I mean, this this is something that has to change behaviourally still in, in society. Um and I know we're getting away from the world of pensions here, which I never thought I'd do. No. But, <laughs> but it, is, it is, you know, it's, it's hugely important. And I, I do think it's something that's, like I say, it shouldn't still be happening in this, this day and age. And, and yes, it, yes, it is. So, yeah, definitely a call for arms there at an operational level. Very good. Very good. Um, have we done the news? No, actually, I've got one more piece. But Nico, All yeah, right. you've been causing trouble on LinkedIn again, haven't you? Oh, well, I mean, I'm not sure trouble is the right word. I saw a post yesterday, and, I, and, I, and, I, and the reason I want to pick up on this is because you mentioned it last week as well, mm. um, about, um, is it the I, I always get the, the letters that were way around. But I-F-O-A. Uh, the yeah. I-F-O-A, and um, they have a council, and like all, yeah. like a lot of membership organisations, and you were, you, were, you were saying last week that the... Um, the elections to that council and the associated AGM have been delayed. And mm. um, I think you, uh, you you put a call to arms out on, on LinkedIn yesterday for, for, for the council, who is meeting today, I believe. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, so, which is so this is, which is Wednesday. So, so we are the Institution Faculty of Actuaries, just because uh, not everybody knows that acronym. Um, so, um, you know, we're, we're the home of the actuarial profession in the UK. Mm. Um and uh yeah i mean we have elections to council which is our kind of supreme body um we've got a royal charter and it, it kind of looks after the constitution um and appoints various members who are sort of more on the executive side um to go and do some stuff not least the president and yeah we're in the position where we are meant to have an election uh as i speak something like three weeks ago was meant to start the election um and uh yeah it's just not happened so uh there's like a little note um that the agm has been delayed the agm was meant to be held on the 27th of june right um and it just says operational reasons so nobody everybody's in the dark <laughs> um so yeah today is the day that council meets um i think for the first time since um the, the this delay to the agm and the elections so yeah, I made a little post to say uh, you guys need to unsuspend our constitution because it's it's just really concerning that an elected body would suspend democracy. Mm. Um, we were watching uh, this. Here's an aside for you, Darren. So we were we were <laughs> watching uh, Simon Sharma's history of Britain okay. last night. Yeah. Uh, Emma and I have been working our way through it, um, and uh, interestingly, so he did the Civil War in the previous episode, and then he did Cromwell. Yeah. Um, and there's this moment where Cromwell storms into the rump parliament 
and says, you're no parliament at all, and, and essentially becomes king in all but name. Yep. Kill, king with guilt. Yep. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, suspends the constitution, the non-functioning constitution. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was, I was sort of sat there watching this and going, like, you know, I can see why you might suspend the constitution to put a better constitution in place. But I think not to tell people what you're doing um, very worrying. And of course, it, 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 this could just be, I'm making it up. It could be a whole bunch of other reasons, you know, like the, 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 the room isn't available yeah. or that we just don't know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, today is the day that council meets. Um, by the time this goes out, no doubt they'll have done their duty and got a published date for the AGM and published reasons for, for why they were comfortable that they should have suspended it and all that kind of stuff. But, um, I just wanted to make sure that they, they didn't let this get glossed over because I think there's a big risk in our culture that we just sort of are very English about this and, 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 and don't speak up. And so, okay. Um, well, we're, we're, yeah. we're, well, let's see. Um, let's see what happens. Um, um, we'll, I'll make a note to ask you about what happened next week. Um, well, and every week, I don't know. At least. My hope, Darren, is that at some stage we can talk about why you should vote for me if there are any actuaries listening. Ah. Um, but uh, <laughs> that's not that's not where we are today. Okay, okay, very good. Right, um, we're getting longer with our news sessions, uh, but actually, um, a lot of the discussion um, is related to value for money, and I think um, it's why they come he, for us, isn't it? I think it probably <laughs> is, isn't it? So, but Mark, you know, um, we haven't introduced you properly yet, apart from saying you're Mister Annuity. Um, can you tell us how you got into pensions? Yeah, I think, I think like a lot of people, it was sort of happenstance. Um, I needed a job. I got a job. And um, <laughs> that, that job happened to be um, at, at an annuity brokerage, so where, where I am now, 10, 10 and a half years ago. And uh, I started off on, on the phone. So you know, I was speaking to people who were looking for the best annuity rates. Mm. And... Uh, I found that a hugely valuable experience. You really felt like you were making a huge difference because um, getting an annuity wasn't compulsory, so to speak, but it was definitely the default. Um, so many people were uh, back then. And so I was there when the pension freedoms hit. Uh, it was uh, announced by, by Mr. Osborne. And I was watching it. So I was watching it live. I was at, at my desk. I had uh, BBC News on live coverage. Mr. Mr. Osborne said mm. said what he was saying. And um, the admin team is about three desks down. And the phone started to ring. And people were standing <laughs> up. They weren't, they, weren't, they weren't like me. They weren't, they weren't watching the budget, um, which is probably a very yeah. good thing. Don't need any more marks knocking around. And... Um, they're just saying can cancel my transaction um i no longer want want this annuity put it all on on pause um so it was a very real impact immediately we were talking within a minute a lot of mm. a lot of pipeline business mm. so to speak was was halved uh, throughout throughout that period and it made substantial changes to that business uh, so a few people you know operationally we had to make some changes and a few people uh, moved on, um, which led me to then lead the the IT team of that that business. Actually, um, I had business continuity experience um, in RBS and direct line, so I came from an insurance background. Yep. Um, so that really got me into things such as uh, CRMs, um, bespoke annuity portals, 
servers you know i was doing the infrastructure i was doing i was doing the whole the whole lot uh, and then the uh, vacancy came up for admin manager when the directors sort of came over and said we think you you would do this but would you also still do the it so i had this very bizarre title of it and administration manager <laughs> for, for a couple of years because those those two tend to go hand in hand um and, and that's where i really got started my journey into what i'm doing now to, to be honest i started making a bit of noise in and around transfer times and transfer experience and the paperwork and the communication that are going out to customers because i was seeing it all firsthand for that very first time so i had that engagement piece on the telephones with people who were making decisions so i had first-hand experience there but now i was also getting first-hand experience of policies being set up and that transfer journey and what people are actually going through throughout that period and that and that's still an area that needs an awful lot of attention i know people like pension b uh, make a lot of noise about it as well and from from there i was you know i was very very lucky that i was promoted to an associate director and then within a year associated um, moved on to a, a full full uh, board director and company director and i'm people say you know that's that's pretty impressive you know and i go yeah it is i'm, I'm really really proud of myself and then i have to tell them that i'm, I'm 34 and people think that i'm mm. sort of joking at first they go no i am 34 it's you know i just had all these roles and put in the hours hence why i look 50. <laughs> <laughs> so it's awesome. a very, yeah. very 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 varied background in, in like i say just 10 10 years but mm. i i really do appreciate all of that experience because it's those experiences that now allow me and my natural love for data to go and tell these stories through the data mm. that i'm seeing and these experiences so i do see myself in a very fortunate position to be honest and it's mm. and it's quite nice i'm just sort of contrasting it with my background in a way because we're both a bit but you know we both like the policy chat don't we mark um we do. you know and um you know my way into policy was very different so civil service, trade association, then doing policy roles at a, a number of master trusts. Whereas, you know, you've come um, at it from a from a different trajectory. And um, I think that sometimes having that, you know, administrative, operational, boots on the ground experience, yeah, really does help, you know, in mm. terms of working out what the art of the possible is. And, um, you know, gives you the opportunity to to argue for stuff from first principles and from experience rather from than from an ivory tower point of view um mm. so you know that i think that you know bringing that expertise bringing that sort of different perspective into the debate is incredibly powerful no, yeah, well, don't, thank yeah. You. yeah i i i you were taking me back to um that budget um so it was one of the, but I used to watch the budget religiously. And then, um, yeah, the George Osborne budget, the, the destruction of the annuity compulsion was one that I didn't watch. Um, and all of a sudden my phone was buzzing. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, it was, it's one of the few moments that I've had where I just went like, oh, what on earth are we going to do now? Mm. And um, yeah, I was due to be, I wasn't speaking, but Towers Watson used to have the, we used to call it the Valentine's Day Massacre, which was when we <laughs> invited in the managers. We invited in the managers to the Westminster Hall or whatever it's called opposite um, Westminster Abbey. Yep. And uh, waggled our finger at them and said, you're too expensive. And that was like a morning. And then they uh, kind of can give us their business cards. Um, so I was due to be um, one of the ones that they threw the business cards at. And I just, you know, 
couldn't do it, sat in a in in a dark room, worked out what an RTW was going to do with you know the removal of the design of all of the glide paths that we put in. Um, nothing like as difficult as uh, you know having to to downsize because your entire business model has mm. shifted. Um, so so real empathy with that. But yeah, you're just taking me back to that kind of sinking feeling of like, what on earth has happened? <laughs> it was um, it was quite an incredible day. I remember a, a couple of things. One, um, just look look back at some of the insurance company share prices of that day, right? Um, yeah. And that's quite um, quite astonishing. And and the other is, I knew the the head of the pensions team, the director of the pensions team, very well uh, for my treasury days. And um, I just went. I was watching the budget, and I'm just sort of emailed one word wow and i just got this response <laughs> back saying good well or bad well uh question mark um and yeah um i think we're still I, i'm still reserving judgment on that one <laughs> yeah excellent yeah. i mean it, it's just it was just an incredible like i say it's an incredible experience you know you do, it's not often you, you you leave the office and your, your your job's being discussed in essence on on, on the nine o'clock news and the six o'clock news mm. you're watching going you know have i now got a job still yeah it's um yeah it was very um, it's going to be always a very emotive time but I, I honestly think you know it was a good thing to do i don't know if it was done for the right reasons necessarily i don't know if we're really always going to get on top of exactly the thought process behind it but it was a very positive move i don't like the idea of everyone anyone going into an annuity who didn't want to be in an annuity yeah um you know that's that's something that's just wrong I think there was um, a real alignment of, of the stars on this, actually, uh, because, you know, the introduction of the, seat, the single tier and the delivery of that um, set above the level of means tested benefits um, solved one of the big problems with um, potentially removing compulsory annuitization. Um, that just people falling back onto means tested benefits. So I think that laid the yeah. foundation. I think um, let's let's. Let's be honest, um, a lot of this was politically driven and was about the um, positioning for the 2015 election. Um, you know, um, it actually saved the Treasury money uh, because they were hoping people would make poor decisions. Genius. Mm. Um, and also, I think that, you know, let's let's be clear, um, the previous system was broken. Um, yeah. And, you know, that sort of forced purchase of annuities I think um, led some insurers and people offering annuities to be slightly lazy in their pricing. Um, you know, the, the incentives were stacked against the consumer. And I think it goes back to some of the points that we were making earlier that, you know, people weren't getting good value because, you know, it was a one shot game and they weren't, you know, being an engaged consumer like you had to be to get the best possible value. Mm. Yeah, and it just doesn't fit well with auto enrollment either no. i don't think um mm -hmm. you know, all of a sudden going you know this is this is a dc environment but you have to do this yeah or, or most of you will have to do this it just doesn't fit no yeah so that brings us quite nicely actually onto mm. what value for money means to you mark well it's 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 a funny one i don't think i actually know it's this this is the truth of it maybe, so, maybe... so why did you agree to come on the podcast no i was gonna say I was going to say you're our first guest to be that honest. Thank yeah, yeah. you, Mark. Yeah. Well, no, I'm, I'm hoping you're going to you're going to help me out. You're going to guide me through it, um, mainly because we, we talk about it in, in accumulation, and I, I want to talk about it in decumulation and, and pension mm -hmm. income and, and what that looks like. 
and you know some some real examples of that if we go you know if i'm mr annuity i'll, I'll bring out an annuity example would be that peace of mind and the cost of certainty yeah. because there's no guarantee that an annuitant or even the beneficiaries or second life will receive the monetary value of the purchase of that annuity yep. so in, in a lot of cases you know you've got annuity options there that will cover that and i discussed some of them earlier but you're paying for that privilege it's knocking down your annual income to, to do that option so it can't be all about costs charges total income returned there has to be something very human about it yeah um and i think that's where any frameworks looking at pension income is going to have to be really quite cold and might not fit into the annuity market it may well purely be in an amount sort of things like investment pathways where they could be a lot more comparable mm. that's a really good point because ultimately it's about you know different different people value different things and i think robert cochran um used some good examples um when he appeared on the podcast um you know i think we were talking about apple products we were talking about his bag um and you know some people do value certainty yeah mm. um and you know what price certainty you know that's that's the sort of key question there and how do you sort of incorporate that into a value for money framework mm. well and in insurance in general right yeah, so, yeah. so you know um what's the value of having the nhs as a safety net uh, you know, if I get hit by a car, then some ambulance will pick me up and, and do the best of my life. As if I was an American, that would be an incredibly expensive, mm. uh, you know, sloppy cropping, crossing of the road, right? Um, uh, what's the value of, of my home insurance policy because my house hasn't burned down? Um, that kind of safety net nature of it as well, I think, is they're very, very hard to put up against the kind of self-insurance world. Very, very hard. Yeah. It's really tricky, and I think as well, behaviourally, behaviourally, it's so difficult. People go into drawdown; they enter drawdown. People purchase an annuity, yeah, and, mm. and that's massive. In, in a, a mental state, you're taking tens of thousands of pounds quite often and purchasing something, opposed to going into something, and that that makes a huge mm. difference. And people have to weigh up immediate income needs and future circumstance such things like inflation death options but you're locking it in years in advance you know it's a huge decision people are making when they're annuitizing mm. it's, it's that one shot game isn't it um does it have to be one shot though mark you know um you know we've we've talked previously um you know outside the podcast about you know um it doesn't have to be all or nothing in terms of annuities um we've we've, we've talked about sort of blended approaches you know where do, where do you see this stuff going yeah and, and it's exactly that's where, where i see it so you know i feel really really privileged and to have the sort of platform that i've been given over the last sort of mm. 12 months or so and i've been very careful to to do not go out and just say annuity rates are high go and buy an annuity mm. what i've been trying to say is these are all the considerations around annuities. Mm. They're irreversible, a lifetime annuity. Maybe look at doing partial annuitization. So taking part of your pot and purchasing an annuity, if that makes sense yep. for you. Yep. And, and and looking at, you know, going through that experience in October, 
that's exactly what we saw at retirement line. We saw a lot of people, and it was typically high net worth because the net fund values were still quite high, over a hundred thousand. Yeah, but they were purchasing an annuity with past their pot and leaving the rest in drawdown or, or their sit. Um, and I just think we can do more of that. So when I think of things like the PLSA retirement living standards, if you look at that minimum retirement living standards, the full state pension covers the vast majority. Of it gets that you. It gets you pretty standard. much there, doesn't it? It it does. But so an annuity part, annuity to cover the rest. So you're basically guaranteed to have the minimum retirement living standard for the rest of your life linked with inflation was around £30,000. So it's still mm. a chunk for a lot of people. But that £30,000 means that you now have the PLSA's current minimum retirement living standard locked in. Here's yeah. your safety net. Yeah. And I just think we could do a, a lot around uh, so Steve, Steve Webb um, and it was Philip, wasn't it? It was Philip Boyle. Yes. Yep. Sorry, Philip. I nearly, nearly got Philip's name wrong. Um, <laughs> came out with Flex, Flex versus Fix later. And I, I just came out with a complete rip off of it and said, you know, secure some, stay supple. Yeah. Because I, I, I really think... <laughs> I'm not a marketing man. Um, <laughs> well, no, I think you are. Yeah. <laughs> I just... I just really like the idea of saying, okay, these are the things that I need to be paid. And if I can't pay them, I'm going to have sleepless nights. That's just mm. a pension and your annuity. And I think that actually helps your asset allocation and your investment on your drawdown potentially as well. I just see that being a very sound approach for a lot of people. That, that's that's just my personal view and is not regulated advice. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah, good, good man. <laughs> so, so I, no, no regulated advice given on this podcast. No, no. no. Um, <laughs> so, 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 so basically, what you're doing is you're you're guaranteeing coverage of the essentials. Yeah. yeah. Um, to you know, and 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 linking that into the PLSA uh, retirement living standards, and then that gives you more opportunity to do more interesting stuff with your money um, over and above that. Mm. But yeah, if you if you've exactly. got the if you've got the essentials covered, then you could potentially take more risk. You know, you um, can. You can. And, and, and Mark, how how are people dealing with inflation? I mean, are, are people taking? Uh, inflation uh, protection in their annuities. What, what what's happening there? So th this was something that the the FCA data. I'm, I'm an FCA data freak. I just, I just seem to know, <laughs> seem to keep. I, I don't remember birthdays and stuff anymore. I just remember escalation rates and kind of people <laughs> take out joint joint life annuities. But over the last six years since they've they've published the, the data it's always been under 15% of all annuities sold have included yeah. some form of escalation. So it's a very tiny fraction. Now, I looked at Retirement Line's customers and done a comparison between uh, Q1 2022 and Q1 2023, and there was a over 100%, I think it was 140% increase in people selecting an increasing annuity payment. So people wow. are very much aware of it at the moment. The take-up is considerably higher, which is exactly what you would you hope for. Um, so that there is going to be some improvements there. But as an annuity option, I just think that that's only been supported because the rates went high. Yeah. If the rates were where they were, I don't think people could have been able to afford that option, if I'm being honest. Right. Mm. It's too much of a hit on the immediate income needs. You know, today, you know, we've 
14th of June 23, in case somebody listens to this in two years' time. Um, hello. Um, we've fixed all the problems that we've been discussing today. Um, you know, a, a level of annuity is probably at the age of 65 getting you over £7,000 a year for 100000 So I think you're getting a rate of about 7.2%. Um, yeah. If you have that linked to the retail price index, it drops down to 4,600 something. So you're closer to 4.6%. Yeah. That's a big hit on, on immediate income uh, for that household or that individual. But, but how do we um, how do we help people through this, Mark? Because, you know, um, if I was outside of the pensions industry and just seen what had happened to annuity rates over the past year mm. or so, it's, it's just like a lottery. You know, um, you know, how do I make those value judgments around, you know, is inflation going to be an issue over the next 20 years? You know, um, these are complicated things that, you know, experts don't get right and experts struggle with. You know, how can we help people through this? I'm glad you've asked that to a non-expert. That's that's really helpful. Um, <laughs> I <didn't> think, <laughs> um, you just set me up there for a massive pull. Um, but, but, but what I really love about, about my role um, and my past experience, as I was saying before, was the customer facing aspect of it I, mm. I don't have a customer facing role now but and, and and this is really something maybe this is a bit of a warning for, t- for today but i've had members of the retirement line team say the customer has listened to this podcast with you or they've read your comment in the telegraph they now will not do anything until they've spoken to you and wow. all of a sudden i'm now speaking to a customer because they've listened to me on a podcast or they've taken that comment from the Telegraph. Mm. And and that is really powerful. I think sometimes we forget mm. when we're doing a lot of the PR um, sort of aspects of the role and the commentary, which is like I say, it's a privilege and I love the fact I do it, that people are reading it, <laughs> which yeah. is something you never, you never know. Like today we're talking into the darkness, but... Well, I don't know, we're getting some good traction, uh, uh, Mark. You know, we're not... No, we're <laughs> well, and Mark, I hope you do, I hope you reciprocate. So when, uh, you know, you, you speak to the customer, you should be saying, part of my advice is to, to listen guidance, to the podcast. Guidance, guidance. <laughs> 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 no, well, that, that, that's it. That, and that's, the, I think that's the frustration for an awful lot of people, is that actually a lot of people just want to tell them what's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and you, yeah. you can't, not, not even advisors really can say, this is going to be right forever. <laughs> this is right right yeah. now, or this is my advice right now. And, and even that can be variable. Um, and, and that's the real difficulty. And we can't predict mm. the future. Whereas with an annuity, what we can say is, this is what's going to happen in regards to this product. All these external components will impact it. But this is what's going to happen with this product. So you're only getting certainty from the product itself, not from external factors. Yeah. I mean, just just turning back to value for money. Um, so is it is it possible to look as an individual at the value of one of these products when essentially, you know, that tempts us to say, is inf- it was inflation hedging past tense, you know, a good thing to do? Um, was, you know, buying a guaranteeing period, was buying an annuity at all a good thing to do? Um, you know, which is the same as asking, was it good for me to buy home insurance because my house burnt down or not? Uh, you, you Don't you have to look at the kind of collective experience of the annuities or the annuity provider to just say, did they, did they rip off the, 
the people who survived or the people who died um you know is can we can we possibly look at an individual level here yeah i, th- I think it's really tricky too isn't it because like i say everyone's so different and i, I think i remember legal in general and i'm gonna go back to 1997 <laughs> I, I think they published something that basically said over 80 maybe 90 percent of all of their lifetime annuitants were still receiving payments more than 20 years on i, I could have some of these some of these numbers wrong but that it was basically they were winning the gamble if you like mm, right um, against that original purchase and i think that should be published i think every annuity mm. provider should maybe consider publishing that because i think that's powerful because people will look at it as a more immediate decision or even though it impacts for the rest of their lifetime and maybe their, their spouse's lifetime you know bring it back to customer examples you know, I, I, I sometimes we'll get case studies for, for the papers as well and reach out to some of these customers. And some of them are just saying, look, I don't even care about the income for me. It's for my partner. I need mm. 100%. It do, really doesn't matter how much it drops by. I just need to know that they are okay when I'm not here. Yeah. And, and how do you, how would you put that in a frame framework? You know, it's, it's nearly impossible, isn't it? Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. That's incredibly powerful. Mm. I, I, I had sort of one question, Mark, and then we're going to have to wrap up. Um, but around, you know, how do we get people the help and support that they need? You know, it, does everyone need advice um, or could we ever have um, sort of default pathways into at retirement? So I, I do see default options becoming available and i think they're going to come with many many challenges mm. especially when they they include annuities because like i say the the definite nature of them so that that's a real big hurdle and underwriting as well um however i think maybe we might get into this happy medium happy i might be doing some air quotes here which doesn't work well <laughs> um, um but i i think we might get something like you know, enhanced guidance, personalised guidance, these sorts of terms, which I know, I think it's uh, the Treasury looking at this, isn't it? Mm. Um, and maybe that could be provided through through Money Helper. And I just wonder whether that's going to be a bit of a, a game changer. Because I've, I've been into PensionWise and I think it's an incredible service. But I know that sometimes they will feel frustrated because they might see the customer going to do harm and they can't really stop it. Um, all they can say is consider the other options. Here's the pros and cons, um, and that and that could be frustrating from a customer experience point of view as well because they just want to be told. Like I said, a lot of people maybe just want to be told what is best for them. Mm. Yeah, it's a difficult world, isn't it? It's a difficult world. I mean, the the, the word advice is obviously so toxic, <laughs> both to uh, you know the provider of the advice and 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 the insurance companies <laughs> indemnifying of that advice. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to just de-escalate, find ways to make advice actually uh, you know work, right? Because I, I, I think advice doesn't work is the big issue, isn't it? It's too expensive, and it's too expensive because it's it's too easy to kind of come back and and blame people for some of the decisions that maybe on that insurance basis is is more about kind of group averages i don't know there's a problem there isn't there well the indemnity insurance that um advisors have to have and the premium rates for that are huge aren't they Mm. oh they're substantial absolutely substantial but i think i think you know there's a really key 
key point here that sometimes we we underestimate and that's just the path of least resistance mm. that's why we don't have huge amounts of shopping around in the annuity space is because it's effort i have to go and do something that i'm not really interested in or engaged in previously yeah. i have to make the time to do it i don't know if i fully understand it so therefore if i only have this form to fill in and i get my income great so i think there has to be some sort of you know compulsion and more you know, discussion around this sort of stuff has been fantastic and it's growing i think we're getting an awful lot of uh, attention on the pension income space and at the access space but it's so tricky when you're doing it at scheme by scheme level and everyone's offering slightly different things or not offering things you know schemes that only offer an annuity direct but not drawdown guess what yeah. they do a lot of annuities the ones that do drawdown option but you have to go to a third party to speak about annuities are doing a lot of drawdown and to add yeah. to that complexity you know we have access being very different to pension income and we're seeing was it 55 to 60 percent of all new drawdown plans are tax-free cash access only yeah you know there's this big chasm in between now which is uh, i think needs to be addressed and we need to sort of try and get better understanding of I think that's yeah. right, um, and quite an onus on um, the guardians of the schemes, so trustees and IGCs, to um, actually think about the options that they offer and what the the implications of those options that they offer actually are. Um, because, as you say, Mark, if you if you offer if you make one easier than the other, then that is going to be a path of least resistance. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's fascinating. It. That's all we've got time for, isn't it, Nico? unfortunately unfortunately for another week uh, we've probably overrun our budget of of our listeners ears but um, we have we have hopefully hopefully the uh, the 10k runners are still yeah, <laughs> just no, exactly. about going yeah so another great episode um remember you can find us on your podcast platform of choice and you can get in touch at vfmpensions at gmail.com you got the email address right. Well, I did, um, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning. So yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. An absolutely brilliant session. And I think you've opened up the scope of the podcast really nicely to to really um, mm. you know, give us some sort of thought-provoking themes to explore around the at retirement and, and um, annuity space. And speaking of, of which, we've got um, Adrian Balding, who um, is going to be chatting CDC um coming on to the pod in mid-july so i'm sure we'll be picking up some of the themes on that um who else have we got um, nico yeah so next week we've got andrew warwick thompson um of course an ex-dc director um i think that's right of the pensions regulator i think he's a director of policy many, many other i think he did the whole director thing of policy yeah. oh there we go um so uh i can remember all the way back to code of practice 13 what fun we had um which was uh kind of trying to put some of these what are they call good governance principles no they called uh, uh anyway we'll find all about that next week um and then yeah we've got uh baroness ros altman coming up uh tansu che who's the uh, one of the ex-presidents of the ifoa um and yeah i'm sure many many more um so yeah looking forward to all of those excellent so um thank you very much mark um you've been an absolute star guest um, looking forward to um, um, speaking to our future guests and um, until next time it's bye from me it's goodbye from me and Mark thank you very much guys and it's bye from Mark as well oh yeah I'll say bye <laughs> <laughs>